0: Uh, I'm Risa Goluboff. Welcome to Admitted Students Weekend at UVA. Congratulations on your admission. I'm sorry we couldn't do more about the weather, but if you don't leave till tomorrow, I think it will be better. Um, We're so happy to have you here, and I hope that we have you here for uh, much more time than just these couple of days. I thought I would tell you a little bit about myself, talk about some background to the case, and then go through the case. it's a challenge for me to limit myself to 45 minutes. I usually am in favor of discussion sort of flowing, and uh, and when that happens, I can just go to the next class period. But here, you all are going to go off to the Supreme Court um, alumni uh, reception, which you should do, but I'm going to try to finish, because if you don't finish, this whole thing is for naught. Okay. About me, I've been teaching at UVA for 13 years. I am originally a northerner, so if you have uh, questions about moving to Charlottesville from the northeast, uh, I can answer them afterwards. Um, I got my bachelor's degree at Harvard, I got my law degree at Yale, and I got my PhD in history at Princeton. It didn't sound quite that awkward when I did it all. Um, (laughs) I have also taught at NYU and Columbia as a visiting faculty member, so there are a lot of institutions that I know a fair bit about, and I'm happy to share my views about them uh, also after we finish here today. Um, I clerked for Judge Guido Calabresi on the Second Circuit, and then for Justice Stephen Breyer at the Supreme Court before I came to teach here. Here I teach first-year constitutional law. Marbury is the first case we do. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. I teach civil rights litigation, I teach various civil rights history classes, and other classes on legal and constitutional history. I am a legal and constitutional historian. That's how I combine my JD and my PhD. Uh, I also teach the JDMA Joint Degree Program. I run that here. So if you're interested in that, you should come see me about that after. I'm currently at work on a book about um, the social movements of the 1960s and policing and constitutional law and how it changes. I recently came up with a title for it, so I'm going to tell you my title. It's called, you don't know this yet, uh, sorry. It's called Vagrant Nation, Police Power, Constitutional Change, and the Making of the 1960s. That's good, right? You want to read that book, right? Okay, good. Um, All right, Uh, my first book was called The Lost Promise of Civil Rights, and it was about Brown v. Board of Education uh, and the conceptions of civil rights before Brown uh, that kind of disappear with that case. The last time I did this mock class, I did it last year and I taught Brown. Um, Obviously that's more of my specialty and that's why I taught it, but I found it difficult partially because as you'll see when you actually read Brown in law school it's not a particularly well-reasoned case. And so if you want to get a flavor of what a class looks like it's not the ideal one. Uh, And also because it's my area of expertise I found it really hard to both do a regular class and talk about the things I'm really interested in. And so I decided to go straight this time doing Marbury. It's the first case I teach. There is a day of introductory material before it and obviously law students have had a whole semester before they get to it because Con Law is a spring semester uh, class. But in terms of Con Law you all are in the same boat as my first year constitutional law students are when they read Marbury. And so that seemed pretty perfect. Um, The other reason I chose Marbury and I hope this doesn't Uh, I had more students when I taught Brown, just so you know. I don't know if they're all with Ann Coughlin doing Lawrence or um, secretly watching the ball game. But, uh, but, uh, But I will say I worry that it's because Marbury is really opaque and hard to read. And part of why I chose it is because it will show you how we professors add value, right? Because you have no idea what that case means if you tried to read it. And here I'm going to unpack it for you and show you how cool it is and how brilliant Uh, Chief Justice Marshall is. The reason we read this case first in con law is because this is the case that creates judicial review and Judicial review is the whole ball game in constitutional law, right? Why is it that these nine unelected judges get to strike down laws passed by Democratic majorities? That's the big question. In fact, that's a big question for all your classes uh, thinking about the role of the judiciary. Um, so, this case is a really big, really important case that structures most of Con Law, uh, and I will, uh, I will show you why. Uh, yeah, I will show you why. I'll leave it at that for now. Okay, so here's the background to this case that you may not have gotten from uh, the excerpt I gave you in your books. The election of 1800, shortly after the framing of our republic, was pretty nasty. Thomas Jefferson was the Republican. He liked small government. He wanted the power to be in the states, more decentralized federal government. He is elected John Adams, who is the incumbent Federalist president in favor of big centralized power. He is defeated. The Federalists and Republicans had feuded all throughout the 1790s, and this election seems like the end of the world to the Federalists. They think the country's just going to go to pot now that the Republicans have come in. It's all bad. Now, Thomas Jefferson is not slated to take office until March of 1801 after the election. So in the interim period, John Adams and his Federalist cronies do a bunch of mischief. Some of the mischief they do has to do with restructuring the federal judiciary and putting in lots of new federal judgeships and stalking them with good Federalists judges, uh, as well as creating 42 new Justice of the Peace commissions. Um, One of the people who is given a Justice of the Peace Commission is poor Mr. Marbury, who is the plaintiff in this case. Now, John Marshall, you may notice in your case, John Marshall is the author of this opinion. He is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court when this opinion comes down. John Marshall was Secretary of State under John Adams, and it was his job to deliver the commissions for the justices of the peace. Now, somehow, we'll see how, Marshall did not deliver Marbury's commission, right? He didn't didn't get delivered. Marbury didn't get his commission. He wants his commission. That's what this case is about. Now, the Republicans, unsurprisingly, are pretty pissed off after uh, uh, the Federalists are having their fun. They repeal Uh, the Judiciary Act that expands the judiciary and gives all these new judgeships. Um, They also eliminate the 1802 term (laughs) of the Supreme Court. They say you can't meet this term because they don't want the court to decide the case that eliminated those judgeships, whether that was constitutional or not. And Jefferson refuses to deliver the commissions that were undelivered. And Marbury doesn't get his commission. He tells his Secretary of State, James Madison, who's the defendant here, Marbury versus Madison, not to deliver those commissions. So when the new term starts in 1803, One of the first cases of the term is Marbury's claim that his commission should be delivered, that he should get to be a justice of the peace. Now in the meantime, this is going to blow your minds, John Marshall is appointed Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and for a month he serves as both Secretary of State and Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Yeah, how do you like that? That's crazy, right? That tells you a little something that's the historian of me, right? This is a different legal culture than our legal culture, if that is okay at all. Um, okay, so he, here's where it gets really interesting, he presides over the trial at the Supreme Court as Chief Justice, where the question is, what happened to Marbury's commission? He knew but he was not called to testify, right? He did not testify about that. Okay, so this is high, high drama, right? High, high drama. Now, wait till you see the outcome. There's a lot of irony here, too. All right, let's talk about the case. case is on page 25 of, uh, 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 that I gave you, right? there. They didn't take that page number off, did they? Because that's gonna kill me, good. Okay, so one difference between um, this class period and my usual class periods is that um, I don't expect I will tell silly anecdotes about my children Although you never know. Uh, But a second difference is I will not cold call you, which I do in my, I I call you Mr. and Ms. I'm very formal. You can see I'm so formal. But in that sense, I'm a hard ass. Okay, so (laughs) I will not call on you. So does anybody want a nice, easy assignment? Read the first sentence of the case. Raise your hands. I'll call on you. Raise your hand. All right, go ahead. Tell me your name just so I have it. Ms. Hedges. All right, Ms. Hedges. See, I'm going to go there anyway. I can't not do it. I don't think I'd feel like a professor. I've been doing this for 13 years. I don't think I would feel like a professor. I didn't say Ms. Hedges. Okay. Ms. Hedges. So the case starts. It's not right at the top. That, you know, that's in. Okay. Where it starts. Read that first sentence. At the last term on the affidavit then read and filed with the clerk, a rule was granted in this case requiring the Secretary of State to show cause why a mandamus should not issue, directing him to deliver to William Marbury his commission as a Justice of the Peace for the County of Washington and the District what does that mean? Oh, see I said it was an easy question and now all of a sudden I'm going to lead you down the primrose path. So what does that mean? What, what does that sentence mean? What, what is the last term? If you start at the beginning there, at the last term, what is that? Yeah, we don't know. He, he, he is, he's talking about in 1801, right, because there was no 1802 court session, okay. The affidavits then read and filed with the clerk. A rule was granted in that case. Any idea what does that mean? The holding? So here's the thing. That's what we would think, right, in law school. The rule is going to be the holding. Here, we're talking, like, you know, early 19th century. The rule is an order. An order was issued. An order was issued to show cause, right, for Madison to defend himself as to why a mandamus should not be issued, why this writ ordering him to deliver the commission should not be issued. Now at the beginning in the next sentence he says, no cause has been shown, and the present motion is for a mandamus, the peculiar delicacy of this case. Now, no cause has been shown. Guess why? So Marshall is there and he doesn't testify and Madison, Secretary of State Madison, he doesn't show up at the trial to defend himself. Now, the Supreme Court does not have a lot of power at this time. In fact, Justice Marshall was not Adams' first choice for a Chief Justice at this moment. Lots of people are saying, I don't want to be a Justice Supreme Court. It sucks. They have no power. They have to ride circuit. They had to ride all around the country on terrible roads with horses sleep and sleep in crappy, flea-infested inns while they were here in case. is not a good thing. So, there was very low prestige, which is hard for us to imagine, and you know who changes that? you know what changes that? John Marshall, this case! How many of you have ever been to the Supreme Court? Have you visited the Supreme Court? Raise your hand. Okay. Now, did you just see the upstairs or did you go to the downstairs? Did you go to the downstairs part where there are like exhibits and stuff? Any of you? Did you see the huge white marble statue of a guy sitting in a chair like this? Guess who that guy is? John Marshall! Guess why he gets the big chair? this case. I mean, there are others too, but this case gets him that. And if you read what's on the walls, there are all these quotes from John Marshall, a lot of which come from this case. Okay. Madison didn't even show up. Didn't show up to the trial to defend himself. That would be the peculiar delicacy of the case, right? He didn't even feel it necessary. Okay. At the end of the day, Ms. Hedges, is Marbury entitled to be a Justice of the Peace? Is he going to get his commission? No. Excellent. You did awesome. Okay. There are three questions in this case, and this is a nice part, right? It's, it, it's all opaque, and then they're right there. Blocked out, indented, right? There are the three questions of the case. First, does Marbury have a right to the commission? Everybody all together, yes or no? Does Marbury have a right to the commission? Yes. Good. Okay. That's an easy question, right? Let's see how confident you get as we go on. Okay. Second, does Marbury have a remedy for this violation of law? Yes or no? Awesome! Do you know what it's called? Good! Okay, he gets rid of mandamus. Third, can this court o- uh, order a mandamus, yes or no? No. No. Okay, so we have a yes, a yes, and a no. The no is, this law is unconstitutional. And I, John Marshall, am going to strike it down, right? He's, that's why I get Okay. All right, so let's quickly go through one and two so that we can, well, Yeah, let's quickly go through one and two so that we can get to number three. All right, so the first question: Does Marbury have a right to the commission? Uh, Somebody new, just so you know, people get used to raising their hands. Very important. No one else. I'm going to have to go back to Ms. Hedges. That's so wrong. She was so brave. Okay, tell me your name. Uh, Rob Rogowski. Rogowski. Okay, Mr. Rogowski, why does he have a right to the commission? Good. Okay. So, did Marshall, who was, by the way, the Secretary of State, right? Remember that. Okay. Did Marshall think that the commission only became legally binding once it was delivered? No! He didn't think it was necessary to deliver it. He thought it became real when? At what point in the process? When the seal was was affixed signed and sealed. That's why he didn't deliver it. He didn't think it mattered, right? As a legal matter, once it was signed and sealed, it was all set. Now, he sort of created his own mess, right? All he had to do was deliver the friggin' thing, although, you know, you never know what would have happened had he done that. Okay. And this is based on, where did you get that answer from? What's it based on that it all it took was signed and sealed in order for it to become? Is it based on the Constitution? Is it based on his own ideas? Of the… Of (laughs) the… Nice! Okay. Uh, And I do that to my other students, too, so don't think I'm, like, pandering to you. Okay. Um, The statute, right? This is what the statute says. This is how you become a justice of the peace. That's what it says. That's what he's reading. Open and shut. Totally fine. Okay. So that's number one. Does he have a right? Yes, he has a right. Okay. Question number two. Does Marbury have a judicial remedy? And uh, 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 Marshall says, of course he has a judicial remedy, for every right there's a remedy. I'm sure even though you're not in law school yet, you've heard that said. It's not really true. Sorry, it's not really true, right? And in fact, Mr. Rogowski has already mentioned the kinds of circumstances under which it might not be true Circumstances under which there's unreviewable discretion right? You might have, un, there might be someone's choice to give you something or not give you something and then you're not going to have, a, well, well, let me take that back. I, I mixed two things together. That, those aren't necessarily the circumstances under which you don't have remedy. There are circumstances under which you don't have remedy. Trust me, we won't get into them now. But in addition to having a legal right, a legally vested right with no remedy, there are also circumstances where you don't have any right at all, right? So what if Marbury had given lots of money to Adams's campaign, and he really thought he was going to get a Justice of the Peace commission, and Adams decides that somebody else gave him more money or he likes them better, and he doesn't even give him the commission. Does he have a right to that commission? Could the court do anything about that, according to Marshall? No. That is the kind of unreviewable discretion vested in the political actors, right? Vested in the president and the executive, right? So what's the difference between a reviewable, when I say reviewable, who do I mean is going to review it? The courts, exactly, right? A a decision reviewable by the courts because it's a legal right and a decision not reviewable by the courts because it's a discretionary act, right? That means, so if there are political decisions that the president or people acting for the president are making for themselves, those are not going to be reviewable, right? Those are not duties created by law. This duty was created by a law. A law said Marbury gets this commission. And the law also said he gets to keep it for five years once it's signed and sealed. Would this be the same case, Mr. Rogowski, if it said he gets to be justice of the peace at the pleasure of the president? No, because then Jefferson could come in and take him out, right? He wouldn't have a vested right. But because it said a term of five years, he's got a right to this for five years. Okay. Because he has a right to this, it's reviewable, and the court can impose a duty upon Secretary of State Madison, who took Marshall's place, to give this Justice of the Peace Commission to poor Mr. Marbury, right? Okay. This distinction between discretionary political acts and non-discretionary legal rights that become duties is an early instance of what's going to become called the political question doctrine. The political question doctrine is the idea that certain questions are committed to the political branches and are not for judicial review. Presidential pardons, for example impeachment proceedings, right? These things are committed to those branches and they don't, they aren't reviewable by the judiciary. There are a bunch of reasons why you can think about that. Um, Some people say that you, you, uh, the political question doctrine exists to protect the court, right? Because if the court gets involved in those kinds of explicitly avowedly political debates and conflicts it's going to lose its legitimacy, it's going to lose a vision we have of it as neutral, right? As a, as a, a neutral legal arbiter. Uh, some people say the reason we have the political question doctrine is uh, because some decisions are uniquely suited for the other branches, right? That's who should be making those decisions. We're going to come back to decisions uniquely suited for particular branches in a minute. Uh, and some would say they need to be actually freed from interference, not just the appearance of legitimacy, but they, the judges need to be freed from politics and need to be freed from the interference of politics in order to do uh, their job. Now, when I say there's no remedy for certain things, like unreviewable discretion or no rights, it doesn't mean that there's no remedy at all. It means there's no judicial remedy, right? There are political remedies for all these things. You vote people into office, you vote them out of office, right? You make known your political disagreements, with them, the president can veto if they don't like what the legislature does, um, the legislature can impeach various people, right? So the reason why, just to be clear, why is there a remedy here, Mr. Rogowski? You already said it. We're just reviewing. Exactly. Yeah, Marbury, right, exactly. So under the statute, he had a vested right. He had a vested right, and that means Madison has a duty to remedy the violation of that right. Right? He has a vested right, and when there's a vested right like that, then there's a duty. There's no discretion on the part of Jefferson and these Republicans to decide we're not going to give him his Justice of the Peace Commission. They have to do it. That's how it goes. Okay. So in question two, Marshall has already started earning the big statue in the big chair, right? Because in question two, what does he say? He says there are times when the court can review the actions of the executive branch, right? There are times. Now, he acknowledges there are times when it can't. Who do you think gets to decide when the court can and when the court can't? The court! Oh my God, imagine that. The court gets to decide when it can review executive actions and when it can't. Okay, so here's the first aggrandizement of judicial review, the first aggrandizement of the court's power. We get to decide when the federal government owes a duty, and we get to say what that duty is and whether it's going to be imposed. All right. Third, And final and most important question, is Marbury entitled to the remedy he seeks? What remedy was that again? Mandamus, right? A writ of mandamus is the remedy. And what's the answer to that again? Okay. There are two parts to that question. The first part of that question is, did Marbury ask for the right writ? What's the answer to that, yes or no? Yes, he asked for the right writ. Look at the statute on uh, page 29. On page 29, in the footnote there at the bottom, the Supreme Court shall also have jurisdiction, da-da-da-da-da, and shall have power to issue writs of mandamus in cases warranted by the principles of the usual law to any courts appointed or persons holding office under the authority of the United States, Is Madison, Secretary of State Madison, a person holding appointed office under the laws of the States? Okay, so he is. He has a duty. He has a writ of mandamus issued against him by the court to fulfill that duty. Ha. So now we get to the big question. Why then does poor Marbury not get his commission? Should I ask him? Oh, look at that! People raising their hands. Yes, tell me your name. Katie King. All right, Ms. King, why doesn't he get it in one sentence? The statute is unconstitutional. That is the right sentence. Ding, 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 right? The statute is unconstitutional. Oh, talk about the big chair, right? Okay, we're going to get there again in one second. The statute is unconstitutional. Now, this is something that my first years do know and you all don't know. If the statute is unconstitutional, then there is not what we lawyers like to call subject matter jurisdiction for the court to hear this case. You'll learn about that in civil procedure. There is no subject matter jurisdiction. Now, usually what you would learn in civil procedure is the first question you ask in a case is whether there's subject matter jurisdiction because if there's no jurisdiction, then the court can't answer any other question. Marshall shows himself to be a bit of a scoundrel here. (laughs) We can't assume he doesn't know that rule although as not a scholar of civil procedure maybe that canon was not in place at the time. I couldn't answer that 100%, right? But why do you think He doesn't answer that question first, because he wants to answer the other questions, right? He wants to say, we get to review executive branch functions, so he's done that, and now he moves on and he asks this question about constitutionality. All right, why does he say, now we're getting into, like, the really tricky bits, why does he say, Ms. King, that this statute is not constitutional? Precisely. That's exactly right. Okay. Now, will you read? Will you read what's on there? Will you read that? In all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers, and councils, and those in which a state shall be shall be party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. In all other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and fact with such exceptions, and under such regulation as the, com- as the Congress shall me. Okay, is there anything up there that you notice that's a little bit different from the quotation of Article 3 at the top of page 29 in your books? What's different between Marshall's quote of Article 3 and the actual Article 3? Tell me your name. Adam Rosenberg. Okay, Mr. Rosenberg, what's the difference? The last. Qu- what? Which clause? Tell me. The exceptions under such oh. regulations, oh. Congress can make. Oh. With such ex- Congress gets to make exceptions. Oh man! Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he mention that? He's such a scoundrel, right? He he quotes. He doesn't quote what it actually says, right? Now. This is not necessarily an airtight reason why this Judiciary Act of 1789 is constitutional, right? Because it's possible, tell me this if you agree, it's possible that the Exceptions Clause only applies to the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. Do you all see that? Right? It comes after. Um, in all the other cases before, so the first sentence is about original jurisdiction, the second sentence is about appellate jurisdiction, with such exceptions, might only modify the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction. So maybe Congress can give it more appellate jurisdiction, but not more original jurisdiction. But do you think that's airtight, Mr. Rosenberg? Not necessarily. not necessarily. Their punctuation was all crazy back then, I don't know if you noticed that, right? Their punctuation in the Constitution, like their commas and periods in all different places, it may be that the With Such Exceptions modifies both appellate jurisdiction and original jurisdiction. And in fact, if Marshall really was convinced that it didn't do that, don't you think he would have quoted it, right? Because it wouldn't have made him so nervous that he had to play fast and loose with the language of the Constitution in this really seminal case, this really important case. Okay, so that's one reason why maybe Marshall isn't so correct, right? Maybe Marshall isn't so correct. now. There's a second reason why Marshall might not be correct. Anybody have any ideas? What other, what other way could you think about this? Yes, tell me your name. Uh, Robert Batista. Batista? Batista. Batista. Mr. Batista. Um, I guess you could interpret the actual statute as not going to enlarge or change the uh, courts. How so? I see. So you think that's like a savings clause, right? Like, eh, if this is a little unconstitutional, then don't just ignore what we said. So that's totally possible. That's totally possible that that's what they meant. Um, there's another reason. Uh, I'm going to put this out there. Tell me what you think, which I thought you were headed toward. Um, if I were to say to you, Mr. Batista, I'm going to give you a bag of potato chips. Mr. Rosenberg, I'm going to give you a chocolate bar. And I'm sorry, the chocolate is so much better, you might disagree, but that, that's why we have, you know, different opinions in the world. But, but I'm going to give you a chocolate bar, I'm going to give you a bag of potato chips, and I give you each of those, and then I also give Mr. Rosenberg a bag of potato chips. Have I violated the first statement that I made? No, I haven't. I've given them both what I said I would give them, but I gave them something else as well right? So what you could say about Article 3 is this sets a floor, right? At the very least, in those first set of cases, Congress has original jurisdiction, and in the second set of cases, sorry, the court has original jurisdiction, and in the second set of cases, the court has appellate jurisdiction, but there's nothing to say that Congress can't later give the court appellate in the original circumstances, or original in the appellate circumstances, what it can't do is take it away, right? So you could say that's a floor, but not a ceiling. Have I convinced any of you that Marshall's reading of the Judiciary Act of 1789 is not necessarily cut and dried? in the way that, say, a 24-year-old running for Congress when it says you have to be 25 would be. Or, for example, the examples that he gives about treason and not having enough um, uh, 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 witnesses. right? Is this that kind of inconsistency between the statute and the Constitution? That it's totally 100% obvious that there's a conflict here? Some of you are shaking your heads. No. Shake your heads, yes or no? Is it totally obvious there's a conflict here, yes or no? Uh, Most of you say no, some of you are uncertain. I think it's uncertain. I think he's a scoundrel. I think he's playing fast and loose with this language. Now, here's the question. Why is it so important to him to say that this law is unconstitutional, right? Yes? Oh, there you go! Talk about scoundrel, right? Talk about both scoundrel and brilliant. Uh, That is exactly right. Here's the advertised part of the case. This law is in conflict with the Constitution, and when a law is in conflict with with the Constitution, we, the Supreme Court, big statue, get to strike down the law. This is the first time in American history that the Supreme Court strikes down federal law passed by Congress. You know what the second time is? Uh, uh, Dred Scott? Yes. That's crazy, right? Dred Scott? That's crazy. Okay. Anyway, back to this case. So, The reason we read this opinion has very little to do with poor Mr. Marbury and his Justice of the Peace Commission. And it has everything to do with the construction and justification of judicial review. There are two parts to Marshall's argument. One part of the argument is about the Constitution itself. And he argues that the Constitution is supreme, right? Where does that come from? He's got some answers. The Supremacy Clause, right? Although it's not clear in the Supremacy Clause, the Supremacy Clause says uh, that the Constitution and laws promulgated under it are supreme, federal laws promulgated under it. But he says that uh, 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 the Constitution is supreme. He says the Constitution is supreme because why else have a Constitution unless it's supreme, right? What's the point of a Constitution unless it's enforceable? There are constitutions around the world that are not enforceable by the judiciary. There's legislative constitutional supremacy. There are also constitutions with hortatory clauses, right? That say this is what we should aim for and that aren't uh, uh, enforceable in a court of law. So some people might disagree with Marshall that there's no point to a constitution unless it is the supreme law of the land, but that's what what he says. Um, Okay, so he says the constitution is supreme And the Constitution can trump democratically passed laws, right, because the Constitution trumps it. But then the question is, how does the Constitution speak, right? In what way does the Constitution trump those laws? And this is the second big point he makes on his way to judicial review. Who gets to say what the Constitution means? Everybody all together. The court gets, uh, are you shocked? Remember the big chair, right? That's why he gets the big chair. The court gets to interpret the Constitution as against the interpretations of the other branches of the federal government. Now, he's got a whole bunch of arguments as to why the court gets to have judicial review. He's got some pretty flimsy Textual arguments about that. All cases arising under the Constitution, well, there are a lot of cases, it you know, doesn't necessarily mean you get to strike down laws made by uh, the legislature. All cases kind of proves too much because not all cases actually do get uh, uh, judicial review in the federal courts. Um, they take an oath, the justices, they take an oath. G- does anyone know who else takes oaths? Everybody, everybody who works in the government, they all take oaths, all, all the officers take oaths, so it's not special that they're taking oaths, but he acts as if it's very, very special. None of that really says who decides what the Constitution means, right? And at the end of the day, those aren't his real arguments. His real argument is about what branch of government is best suited to interpret the Constitution, and what branch of government is that? The court, the judiciary, right, he said "Is it is emphatically the province, emphatically the province of the judiciary to interpret the Constitution. The task of judging is one that lawyers who become judges are supposed to do. And he links here the existence of a written constitution and the supremacy of a written constitution with the task of judging. Why does a written constitution matter? Why is it so important to him that we have a written constitution and not like England, an unwritten constitution? Why does that matter if you wanna say judges are the ones who should interpret the constitution? Somebody new? Okay, so there's, there's lots of a separation, right? Other reasons, exactly? Other reasons? They need words to interpret. They need words to interpret. You have a Constitution. It's written down. And you have a law. It's written down and you lay them side by side and you compare the written words, right? This is what lawyers do. They read words and they interpret. This is what you will do three years from now, right? You'll graduate and you will read words and interpret them. What else do words do? They constrain right so if you're worried if you're worried that giving judges judicial review is going to just let them run rampant over the democratic process let them just do anything they want to do well a written constitution doesn't do that it's constraining now i see some of you already have amused looks on your faces because you've already concluded that's exactly what the court does but You have to hold that in abeyance for some parts of constitutional law, not all. But I see it as my job to instruct you in that kind of cynicism. You shouldn't arrive already cynical, right? Um, uh, Okay, so Marshall says, there is a written constitution and we have a written law and you put them next to each other and if they conflict, the constitution wins. Now, the way he describes it, as I said, is as if there's a clear violation of the Constitution here, which I'm not so sure there is, but he wants it uh, to look like that. There's one kind of argument that is uh, conspicuously missing here, and it's a historical argument. Marshall does not argue that, historically speaking, we know judicial review was contemplated or the framers thought that there would be judicial review. And in fact, and perhaps this is why he doesn't discuss the history, the history is mixed and it gives him mixed support. It is true that some form of judicial review was contemplated by many of the framers at the founding of the Constitution. It's discussed at the convention. It's discussed by Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Paper Number 78, one of the more famous Federalist Papers. But it's not free from doubt. One of the reasons it's not free from doubt is it's not in the Constitution. It's a little weird, right? If they contemplated that it would be in the Constitution if they contemplated that it would exist, why wouldn't they put it there? You may recall from fifth grade civics that we have a government of checks and balances, right? The other checks are in the Constitution. What are the other checks? What kind of things? Yeah, veto power, the impeachment power, power, Confirmation. confirmation of nominations and approval of treaties, right? Those are all places where one branch interferes with the workings of another branch, right? The veto power is the president inserting himself into the legislative process. All those other checks are in there. Why not put judicial review in there, especially since there was a judicial review of this sort in England? So if you know the background conditions are such that it's not expected, you expect it, you should write it down. I mean, one could say, right? There's a, there's a fancy Latin phrase. Anybody know the fancy Latin phrase? Or if it's not written down and other things are written down, then it's not. You shouldn't assume it's there. Fancy Latin phrase. Expressio unius est exclusio alterius. The expression of one thing excludes others, right? So if you put the veto power in there and impeachment in there and you don't put judicial review, maybe you didn't mean for judicial review to be there. Alternatively, some historians have argued that the framers did contemplate judicial review, but they only contemplated in the really obvious horrific circumstances when the conflict between a law or a presidential action is so clear that it can't possibly uh, correspond to the Constitution. As I tried to convince you, although you didn't all seem convinced, but that's okay. I'll have another shot next year once you're here for real. This is not one of those cases. This is not one of the cases where it's so obvious that there is a discrepancy between the Constitution and uh, the law. There are also some historians who suggest that popular sovereignty, not judges, would provide for judicial review, that it was the people themselves who would find ways of articulating that something was unconstitutional and therefore could not stand. So when we, and I didn't ask your name, what's your name? Peter Bouts. Okay, when Mr. Bouts says, he created judicial review, and I say, yes, he created judicial review. He didn't create out a whole cloth. It's not like he made it up from nothing. There was precedent. There was some reason to believe it might be there. But he created judicial review, right? He still created it, not all together. But it wasn't contemplated necessarily in exactly the way that Marshall exercises it, and that's why Marshall gets a big chair in the Supreme Court, right? That's why he gets his quotes on the wall. He is the one who made the Supreme Court the powerful institution uh, that it is. Okay, remind me, everyone, who won this conflict, Marbury or Madison? Ah, good answer. Okay, in the case itself, who won the case? Madison won the case. Okay. But here's the weird thing, right? Why does Marshall go to such lengths to strike down this law? We have one answer. One answer is he wants to create judicial review. But there's another answer. There's a political answer. What's the other answer? Tell me your name. This is your second class with me. You're cheating. Argent Chenoy. Mr. Chenoy. Exactly. Did Madison even show up at the trial? Madison didn't even show up at the trial. If Marshall sits there and says, he has a vested right, mandamus is the right remedy, and you have to give it to him, does he think Madison is going to listen? Hell no! Madison's not going to listen. He has no power. John Marshall has no power. He doesn't have the power of the purse. He has no money to spend to make Madison do this. He doesn't have the power of the sword. He has no enforcement power separate from the executive branch. That's who Madison is, the executive branch. If Marshall says something, the only way he can get anyone to do it is to persuade them to do it because he has to rely on the other branches for money or power or both. And he doesn't think that's going to happen, right? So Marshall is not only aggrandizing the court's power, he's doing so in a circumstance where he doesn't test it. It sits on the books for 50 years, until the eve of the Civil War, as power, rather than, ah, we asked him to do something, and he didn't do it, and now we lost even more power. Right? It's totally brilliant. Marshall establishes number one that the executive branch can be reviewed by the court. Actions of the executive branch. Number two, that the judiciary can also review laws passed by Congress. Judges are the authoritative interpreters of the Constitution. And he greatly expands the power of the court while avoiding its exercise. Totally brilliant, right? Totally brilliant. Okay. Did I add value to that case? To that boring, boring case? Okay, was it worth? Okay, I hope it was worth. Okay, so let me just say one last thing. It's not only that this case begins most constitutional law classes, and it's not only that this case is why Marshall gets the big chair, it's also that this case raises all the big questions of constitutional law going forward. Is judicial review justified, right? That's the big theoretical question underlying all of constitutional law. Is it justified for nine unelected judges to strike down democratically passed legislation? And that in turn involves three other big theoretical questions. Who interprets the Constitution? Is it just the judges? Do other people, do other branches of government? Do other regular people in the world like you all Two, how should you interpret the Constitution? By the text, by the history, as a living document, as a matter of protecting political processes, as a matter of natural rights. There are all kinds of ways you can interpret the Constitution. And three, what is a Constitution anyway? So with that, I will leave this. And if you want answers to those questions, you'll have to wait till next year, and even if you come and you get me and you do this again, I'm still not going to answer those questions. (laughs) Um, Thank you. I'm happy to take questions, although it's just about five o'clock, but I'm happy to stay after if people have uh, questions that they want answered. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your time.